Hey, thanks for listening to Consumed with Scott Porch. On today's show, Warren Littlefield, one of the executive producers of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale, and formerly the president of NBC Entertainment, who ran the network during the heyday of Seinfeld, Friends, ER, and Will and Grace in the 90s. The first half of the interview is about the recent network upfronts and Littlefield's time at NBC, and the second half is about the current season of The Handmaid's Tale. There are some spoilers through the first six episodes of season two, but there's nothing particularly spoilery past episode four, so you should be fine to listen to the second half of the interview if you're an episode or two behind. Two of the pivotal events of season one of The Handmaid's Tale were Offred, played by Elizabeth Moss, leading an act of nonviolent resistance after The Handmaids were ordered to stone one of their own to death, and Offred learning that she was pregnant. Those two things come together in this scene from the season two premiere between Offred and Aunt Lydia, played by Anne Dowd. Moss and Dowd both won Emmys for their roles during season one. Thank you. You're eating for two. I'm not hungry. Loss of appetite is common these first few weeks. You just have to make an effort. You have quite an adventure ahead of you. And we are going to make sure you get absolutely everything you need. Plenty of rest and healthy food, fresh air, exercise. You'll just have to be my very good girl. You could do that, can't you? I will try it, Lydia. Good. We certainly won't have any more theatrics, will we? (laughs) Such nonsense. Such a waste of energy. And for what? But nothing. Janine isn't nothing. Warren Littlefield, I really appreciate you talking to me. Listen, we're taping this interview during Upfronts Week, and I wanted to start by asking you as a former NBC Entertainment president, what are you seeing in, in, in the Upfronts? Well, it's it's kind of an interesting time for network television. They're they're evaluating how they keep up with streaming and with premium cable. Uh, I think one of the more interesting headlines is that they are trying to reduce their commercial load, um, and and they're thinking more and more about the viewers, um, the kind of experience in a world where we have infinite choice, the kind of viewing experience. That the um, that their consumer has, so I think that's a good thing. Um, I think also, um, you know, as the as the number of series that come into people's lives continues to go up and up, um, the focus is on uh, trying to do more complex narratives, trying to do um, just better television, uh, and. Um, and it's tough because if you're at a network, you still need advertisers for um, a lot of your support, and and of course um, less so at uh, premium cable and and less so at um, at streaming. So so it's it's an interesting game of catch up that the networks find themselves in. 
I have wondered, and I think we'll have a better idea of this by the end of the year, uh, halfway into the network season, but I've wondered if Fox is learning the wrong lesson from Roseanne by ordering all these multicams. Do you, but then on the other end, you know, the Big Bang Theory and Mom do really well for CBS, so I've wondered why the other broadcast networks have, have not gone back to multicam sooner. What What do you see when you look at that? Well, I think it first comes down to an understanding of who you are as a network. Um, you're not um, you're not back in the old big tent era where you're something for everyone. You really want to try and strategically carve out your identity. CBS historically has done that. They've had a sense that they appeal to a little older audience. Um, they don't have to have all their support in the major cities um, there. They've traditionally had a lot of support in what we would call C&D counties. They've had a very good sense that that the multicam comedy and the procedural drama um, and then also a couple of strong reality choices, that's a good mix for them. Um, and they've been consistent and delivered on that. And and so I think for Fox, the, the question is more, so who are we? Um, now, we know for decades, part of who they are is uh, they're the guys who deliver the animated uh, uh, Simpsons and the shows that go with Simpsons on Sunday night. You know, and, and that's an institution, a very, very successful one. Um, but, you know, Fox historically has been a little younger, a little edgier, um, and so uh, I think they're. I, I think it's interesting to see where they're reaching to go in terms of um, the identification that they want with audience. Um, the one thing about the multicam comedy is they're a lot cheaper than a single cam comedy, so um, the risk and reward is is a much better equation. That is interesting. So that might explain uh, Fox in a transitional year. That might be explained from a cost standpoint as easily as from a from a multicam as as programming standpoint. Well, I think it's a factor. You know, as you you do have a limited amount of of money for what you're able to do over the course of the broadcast year, and um, and. You can uh, you can get a number of more at bats with new multicam comedies than you can with the single. Um, so it, it it all has to do with identifying who we are, um, look at the success from our past, and chart where we want to go in the future. That's a critical process in the life of a network. I've been glad to see NBC try some interesting things visually, though I, I don't think that they've necessarily paid off. Emerald City was a big, expensive, colorful, visually interesting uh, series that, that that did not do well uh, for them in the fall. And The Good Place is a, a, a sort of an effects-driven show that's done mm-hmm. well enough to get multiple seasons, but hasn't really been a breakout. Is it discouraging to see that audiences are not really coming along with more sort of visually interesting programming on NBC? Well, um, look, I think you have to constantly test 
where they'll go. Um, and, and it's very important to fail. Uh, it's very important to put out there, um, uh, you know, let's go back to Stephen Bochco's Cop Rock, right? Um, and that was on ABC. Um, you had the master of television drama, of, of brilliant procedural drama, um, taking a shot on a, um, a procedural show slash musical. Um, and the audience rejected it soundly. Um, but I think it's really important to push the envelope and see where the audience might go. And that's different, uh, I think, with with cable versus uh, cable and streaming versus network. Um, uh, they tend to not be quite so innovative um, on the network side. And, and you also, success is defined in... Um, with needing a lot more, a lot more eyeballs when you're on the network side, uh, but but experimentation tells us um, what the audience has an appetite for, um, and so I think that's critically uh, a part of of what we do. And I think NBC has tried things like that in the past. Did you order the Gulliver's Travels with uh, Ted Danson, or was that after you? Yeah, no, that was me. That was me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a that's a really similar swing to, you know, to Emerald City. You know, if you back up a decade or so and, and see what was out of the box at that time, I I think that was pretty out of the box. I think so. Um, and, and that was probably closer to 20 years ago. Um, but oh, was, it, was it that long? Oh, no. Yeah. Well, <laughs> scary for me, Scott. Um, oh, but, my gosh. But, uh, yeah, uh, um, that that notion of doing long form events um, was part of the network diet. And we kind of expanded what those events might be, but it was brilliantly done. um, And the audience um, responded uh, wholeheartedly um, on a May, uh, on a May air date um, about 20 years ago. So uh, uh, again, you, you don't know unless you, take the big swings. Um, and, uh, and that can end up being a bold building block of who you are as you move forward. Has there been a change in the way comedies in particular are developed now where shows are finding themselves much faster? I look at something like uh, Seinfeld or, or Parks and Recreation that were not really very good shows their first seasons and got almost miraculously better in their second seasons. And you look at Cheers that was you know famously one of the lowest rated shows on TV its first season, but the lowest the rated, that, not, not the close, lowest but rated, yeah, the the absolute. <laughs> On all of network television, there were only three networks at the time, but it was the lowest rated show on network television. But I look at a bunch of shows today like Santa Clarita Diet and One Day at a Time on Netflix and The Good Place on NBC and basically all of those family comedies on ABC. And I see a bunch of shows that knew exactly what they were from the first couple of episodes. Has something changed in the way comedies are developed or or am I more cherry picking examples of, of things that might not have been the case even. Yeah. I, I I don't think it's a change in the process. I, I, I think, um, every, 
once in a in a blue moon, once in a decade, you have um, a creator, a showrunner, who just knows where that show wants to live, um, and um, and they go out there and they make the pilot, and it's it's actualized. It 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 is it magically comes together and you see it, you get it, and then they continue to execute it. Golden Girls was a, was a case. Susan Harris um, wrote that pilot script. Uh, the casting was just 50-plus um, female all-stars. It was an uh, um, outstanding group of actresses to choose from. They went on stage, and it was just, they hit it out of the park. And, and and I sat there the night of the taping and I just said, this is a hit. This is a hit. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, hopefully the cameras were working because what I saw on stage was spectacular. Um, and, and then with Susan Harris guiding it, but not the day-to-day showrunner even, um, but they hired outstanding people and they never missed a beat. It just continued um uh to excel and and i i think it's it's just um it's just showrunners i i think a, a more contemporary references probably modern family and blackish have known early on just where they lived and what what they were doing and and uh has had that kind of consistency um but it, it's it's rare. Uh, a, a lot of times you struggle to find it. You know, with Seinfeld, Jerry and Larry, they didn't know what they were doing. They hadn't done it before. But their voices were so unique and so wildly entertaining. And they, they were kind of doing a show for their friends. They wanted it to sound like, they wanted the voices of that show to sound like, the people that they knew and uh, lo and behold so was the, was the development conversation between the first season and the second season about stop looking at what's on TV and start doing your thing was that was that the tone of the of the you know it was it was really um, it, with Seinfeld we did a pilot then we did four episodes and then from four we went to 13 and so it was a very slow stutter start, but um, each time they seemed to Jerry and Larry just seemed to have in their brain what they wanted to do. Now there were discussions about, hey, maybe if you had a story that might be a little better, um, and and famously from the Chinese uh, the Chinese restaurant episode. Um, to ultimately Larry got addicted to story. He then started slowly started to find that the more stories he would weave together, the more interesting that would become for him. And, and out of that came kind of a reinvention of the comedy format. Um, comedies went from traditionally two acts, um, a total of seven scenes to Larry started writing 14, 20, 25 scenes in a 21 minute show. 
um, it, it just became more and more complex. He just smashed because he didn't grow up in that system. He just smashed it and said, this is what will work for me. So that's innovation. And, and I think it's, that certainly didn't come from us. That came from, I think, us being smart enough to get out of his way and let him do what was uh, where his instincts were taking him. Um, many, and it's probably fair to say most former studio, film studio and TV studio chiefs wind up becoming producers. Would you say that that, that is more on the, the pure creative part that you know what good TV is or more on the cynical part that you know how to make a TV show find an audience? Or maybe those are the same thing. I don't. I don't think. Oh uh, no! They're I the think they're. Thing, I think I'm, they're different skill yeah. sets. Yeah. Look, I. I. I think that. Um. It, if you've had, if you've had years at a network, you probably your antenna's pretty good for understanding what do they need, um, and perhaps what are they missing. And I think that analysis, um, Fred Silverman was always brilliant at that. And Fred Silverman went from, of course, um, a major uh, uh, broadcaster at CBS, ABC, and then NBC, and then went on to produce. And Fred would come in and go, I'll tell you what you need. You know, on Wednesday night, what you're missing is that. And, and you'd listen to him and you'd go, huh. I think he's right. Um, and then he'd say, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to do Matlock. We're going to do In the Heat of the Night, whatever that pitch was. Um, and so the the analysis is part of the equation. Um, the other half of it is, of course, what's the inspiration? What's the idea? Who's going to execute it? What do you want to say? What is the show really about? And then can you execute it? And, and so sometimes uniquely, there are people who can, uh, can walk in with, with all those skill sets. Um, and, and, and that makes the, the job of the, the buyer, the broadcaster, um, a lot easier. Um, but that's unique. That doesn't happen a lot. You you are an executive producer on Fargo, and you said in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter in August that it wasn't clear if or when there would be another season of the show. Has anything changed since then? Uh, yes. We are planning uh, season four for Fargo. Um, okay. That probably – we probably will start uh, prepping that in a year. Um, so it's got a long lead time, um, but we need winter for Fargo. Um, and right. then uh, fall of 2019, um, we'll, uh, we'll go somewhere cold and make it. Um, so, so is Noah Hawley going into the writer's room soon on that? Or it, season he'll go, he's doing a feature uh, this summer. Um, and when he finishes shooting the feature, um, then his uh, creative task is to sit down and write the first hour of Fargo. Um, he has a, a location and a year um, in his brain, and and he's 
rumbling and playing with the characters, and he'll write that first hour, and then we'll put the writer's room together, which is usually quite small, um, and um, and then start breaking stories and and get scripts. We we generally with Fargo have most of the scripts written before we go into production. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah, it's, um, it's coming. It's 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 uh, our partners at MGM and FX have been wonderful. They're they're like Fargo's a fine wine. And whenever whenever we can get another one, we'll take it. So uh, Fargo 4 um, would then uh, be available for 2020. And you, and Handmaid's also shoots in the winter, right? Um, yes, Handmaid's uh, shoots in the fall. We'll go back into production for year three. Um, and uh, we'll start shooting the 1st of October. Um, and so we get we get a little bit of the the color and the beauty of of fall uh, in New England. We shoot it, of course, in Toronto, um, and then uh, and then it fairly quickly gets uh, pretty chilly. Um, and uh, and then we're there for the winter and into the spring because with Handmaid's Tale we do thirteen episodes. Uh, oh, so this season, I think last season was 10, right? This mm-hmm. season will be 13. This year where is 13. You, where did you shoot the colonies? I was curious whether that was somewhere around Toronto or if you had to actually have a second unit in a completely different area for that. Uh, we're about an hour for the colonies, about an hour outside of Toronto. Um, uh, Oxbla, Ox, uh, I'll think of it. And it's um it, it it really needed to feel that we were out in the middle of nowhere um and from from high above as we look down it's it's actually quite beautiful and then the closer you get you realize that oh this is a toxic waste dump and it's uh it's fairly deadly and um and it's pretty awful um but the way that uh, Colin Watkinson, our director of photography, shoots, and um, and the way Mike Barker um, directed and created that whole world with our production designer um, Elizabeth Williams, uh, they really there was a, a majestic quality to it. So we we're really happy with that expansion of our world of Gilead. Well, going back to the development of the show, was it freeing to not have really much of a drama brand at at Hulu to fit into from the standpoint of of cinematography and and production design, or would that have been the approach even if it had been an HBO or or FX show? Um, I I, I would say that Hulu um, really. They, they embraced the vision that, that Bruce Miller created, um, obviously inspired by Margaret Atwood, but they weren't fearful. Um, they What they spoke to us about is they were enthusiastic about an adaptation of Margaret Atwood's book. Um, and they said, you walk a thin line in terms of whether it's hopeful hopeless. And we think if it's hopeless, then we won't be able to hold on to the audience for very long. 
um, we agreed. Um, as tough as it is, our hope is tied up in Offred in June and her survival. Um, and um, and and so our our vision of of kind of this impressionistic camera work um, that uh, Reed Morano brought certainly to the first few hours of season one. Um, the, the style of how we look at that world, the world of Gilead is quite, quite beautiful again, until you get really close. Um, and then it's not, then you see some of the horrors and inequalities of the world. So, um, they were wonderful partners who embraced what we, the vision that we had and what we were trying to do. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I, I can't speak to what it would have been at HBO or somewhere else, but, um, they let us make the show that we wanted to make and celebrated it once we did. The long red coats and the white bonnets have become such a, a huge icon on the show. I'm I'm curious whether there were other costumes that you tested or, or drawings that you saw that that would have looked much different than that, that you're, you're glad you picked what you did. Well, um, Anne Crabtree is our costume designer. She made, oh, 25 different vers versions oh, of, wow. of the bonnet. Um, we were concerned that if we got the bonnets wrong, that it would feel like we were doing the flying nun and that there should be a laugh track. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, we were, we were really nervous about it. Um, and, and then we had this, unique uh and 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 we did some camera testing also because how do you see the faces and and you know their what they can see of the world is is limited um by the bonnet and um and and so we needed to see their face but the camera actually has to like work to get to the faces um and somehow in all of those choices we ended up with the right one, and they weren't ridiculous, and, and they ended up being kind of a fashion statement. Um, uh, Anne Crabtree also looked at uh, uh, 40 different shades of red. Um, the fabric that made many of the initial, initial uh, handmaid's red robes, that fabric came from Italy. Um, and then we had scenes where we had 75 handmaids and, and, and we matched as close as we could, uh, material from, from other places. But, um, the, the amount of detail that went into it, um, is, uh, it's quite remarkable. And, and, um, and, and then Serena joys the, the, the color of her dress the blue of her dress, um, then we we had a complimentary blue for Serena Joy's sitting room. And probably there's eight coats of paint on the walls in, uh, in that sitting room. Um, Bruce Miller and myself were like, I have no idea if this is going to work um, with, with what Yvonne, Yvonne Straharsky is going to be wearing as Serena Joy 
and what will happen and will she disappear when she's when we shoot her in this room and it's just brilliantly compatible um it's just unbelievable design aesthetics and um and artists who who absolutely knew just what they wanted so we were really fortunate with the with the department heads that we we brought in and and the vision that we listened to uh, hearing you talk about the the costumes r- reminds me of the a great joke i heard last year uh about the series have have you heard what mike pence's main criticism of the series is oh no the the red was a little bit off <laughs> uh, his uh his Twitter feed has gotten a little scary the last few weeks. Um, so yeah. I, I, I wonder what, uh, uh, what the country would, uh, would look much different than the show. If, if, uh, Mike Pence were president right now, we, we may be better off with the crazy president we have. Yeah. Um, one would think that we could do better than either choice, but, um, yes, it's, uh, it's a drama every day day is a drama that unfolds. I, 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 I think it's also as, as relevant as we are to the world that we live in, um, in, in the fight for feminist rights and the fight for human rights that are certainly portrayed on the show. Um, it's important for us that we're doing a compelling human drama um, and that we're not, we don't fall into trying to do the news um so uh but it's it's we we certainly have been a part of uh a part of the discussion uh and and our our handmaids um our handmaids dresses have been used in forms of protest not only all over the united states but in places all over the world um it's uh it's incredible to see one criticism of season two that I had seen before I started watching season two, and I think was maybe over prepared for and didn't really agree with, is that it's relentlessly bleak. I have not necessarily seen that, but Allison Herman, the TV critic for The Ringer, made what I thought has has been a comment that I've seen a few times. She said that season two has been quote, mired in a dire situation that's increasingly difficult to watch. Do you think that she's right and that's the idea or that you're going to a place that she hasn't seen yet? Well, that she's just outright wrong, that it just hasn't been as bleak as 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 I think what some of the criticism has been of. Yeah, I I think what's filtering in is that um, what's settling into this country is the reality that uh, Trump is here longer than than a lot of people expected. That's bleak. That is hopeless. Um, That's tough to stomach. Um, So, um, Alfred, I'm, I am nodding. I am nodding my head like a trained yeah. donkey right now. You so know, ab- I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, so, Alfred and June's imprisonment also is um, there's no easy solution. It's becoming more complex for her. And yes, it's a it's it's dark. It, it's always dark. Um, but uh, again, I I think that 
when you get through, and hopefully what audiences will feel is as they navigate through the entire season, is they'll feel hope, they'll feel a lot of character surprises, um, and um, and feel like there's a reason to continue on. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think I think there is some bleeding of the hopelessness that we experience in everyday life that bleeds over into a show that um, that certainly thematically plays with some of those issues. Um, and um, but I, I I feel we stay on on the right side of it um, that we that we do give the audience a reason to continue to stay with with Ofred. Uh, with Alfred and, and, and June and, and follow that journey um, because there's many, many developments to come. Season one ends where the book did. And so you were able to start season two with no preconceived story that you needed to, to, to track or make decisions about how soon did you start talking about what would come next? Um, we really in in the first when we were when we were shooting the first season, we began our discussions about season two. There were also places in season one where mostly the narrative came from the book, but there were occasionally we would go off away from the book, and it was interesting to us that um, online they didn't like jump up and hold us accountable to that. Um, so they seemed. The audience seemed to be comfortable with where we were going. Um, no one was a bigger champion for um, it's okay to leave the book behind than Margaret Atwood. Um, and I, I think her vision always looms over us um, in the best possible way. We're always paying attention to the world that she created, but we must move on because we burnt through a lot of that narrative in season one. Um, and things change for these characters, you know, Alfred is pregnant, um, as we, as we go into season two. So we're dealing with the theme of, of motherhood. Um, the, her child, Hannah, as well as her unborn child that she's carrying, um, and we're also dealing with the theme of Gilead is within us. And so even when Alfred is on the run, even when we have uh, characters in Little America up in Toronto, um, Luke and Moira, who have found freedom, Gilead still is, is there. It's still hanging there. It's inside of them. It's a part of them. And so that becomes also an important thematic for us to explore. Those are new from Margaret's book, but you don't come to those themes and you don't get to explore that material without all the groundwork that Margaret has laid. You have widened into the history and and geographically in, in, into the world season two. Does does your development brain say that's something you're supposed to do in season two, or or is that something? And I see a lot of other shows, you know, do that successfully uh, as as the show goes on. Is is there some um, particular hook to that, or is that is that just where I think, it felt like the next place to go. Yeah, I think it's my producing brain. Um, uh, and and what it says is um, 
don't disappoint the audience and give them something that they've already had. Um, again, it's the, the difference, I think, also between a lot of network television and uh, and cable streaming is that um, you you don't want to... Part of the satisfaction in a procedural is you're delivering a lot of the kind of vitamins and minerals of of what makes up that procedural drama each and every week. You're continuing that variations of that theme, and and I think in in a show like Handmaid's Tale, we want to move forward. Um, there's the assumption that the audience has. Um, really wrestled with this content, um, that they have followed it closely, that they understand it. So the, the narrative is complex, the character development's complex, and we don't want to duplicate where we've been. So we push ourselves forward. We push to change, to move things um, because we can and we think we should. And we think that in award-winning television, that's what you get to do today. And the audience gobbles that up. Now, we may burn through story and characters faster than some other shows might, but that's okay. Um, we we embrace the challenge um, of of trying to keep the audience on their toes and not duplicate where we've been before. Are you widening a story Bible beyond what you need as you go forward, or are you only making decisions that you need to make one episode at a time? Oh, no, there's, there's a, a map for, um, there's a map that, that we're currently working on for season three and you lay out the entire season and where where you want to go, what the themes are, where you want to go, and then and then that filters down into specific episodes. Um, and there's always story material that you simply can't get to once you start um, focusing on on what what makes up an episode that fulfills that thematic for the season and the goal of where you want to go. We always find there's there's cards up in the writer's room. There's additional things on, on the whiteboards, and you go, ah, just didn't get to that. Um, and that's all part of the fun and part of the process. Um, and and I think particularly this year in the writer's room, we'll think more even beyond season three and, and think about a few seasons out um, so that so that we feel, um, and not that it couldn't change, but but you want to feel like you know where you're going. In, in this TV world today of, of franchises and parallel stories and unrelated stories in the same universe, is that something you've talked about with Handmaids, of, of whether there could be a Fear of Handmaids uh, spinoff or a prequel or an unrelated series well, that we, could happen at the, at the same time? Yeah, we haven't gone there yet, Scott, but it's, that's a really good development question. So um, I'm, I'm proud of you for coming up for it. Um, and and, and I, I think one of the things that is on our agenda for, for this year is, is to explore, well, how, how big is this world? 
um, and therefore, what are the what are the other opportunities? Um, and um, and of course, you know, we flashbacks are a strong tool for us to understand where our characters have been, and and simply to bring to life in a in a dramatic fashion. How did this happen? Um, you know, more traditional network environment may have said, okay, you know, you're doing Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Well, the first two episodes, you have to say, you have to show the audience, how did we get from America to Gilead? How did that happen? And instead, that's not what we did at all. But slowly, particularly in season two, we see some of the things that fueled that change. So there's a lot more to explore, and 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 I think uh, you know this summer in the writers' room it will be an opportunity to to look at those opportunities. The stuff with Serena Joy has been fascinating. This interview will post, I think, right after episode six has aired. So we'll be through the part about Serena Joy going to the protest and or going and having her book protested. What do you what What do we know about? their lives about Fred and Serena? What was her book about? What, what, what was she an academic? What, what is, what do we know? Yeah, she, she was, she was an academic. Um, and, and Fred recognizes how powerful a partner he has when she is in front of people to speak. Um, and, um, and so episode six really shows, um, her, her influence, her value in the creation of Gilead. Um, Season two is a spectacular year for Yvonne. Um, And and not to say that that Lizzie or or Ann Dowd or or any of our other actors um, uh, take a backseat, but but what happens to her as a character um, and the dynamics, it, it really is exciting to see what she gets to play this year. Uh, uh, I, I'm hoping that she gets the Klig light that she deserves, uh, because it's a spectacular season for her. Um, are you expecting to see a more aggressive campaign around her this season? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. I think she deserves it. Well, I really appreciate you talking to me. Uh, I'm loving the season and uh, looking forward to uh, to seeing the rest of it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your support. And uh, cheers to you, my friend.